All right, and as you're finding a spot and getting a set of notes, let me just remind you as to what's going on, what's coming up. Tonight at 6.30 is our annual Adult Christmas Fellowship. We invite all of you to attend in the program today. We have in there what we ask you to bring. If you weren't didn't know about it, you weren't planning on attending and therefore aren't able to bring any of those items, it's all good. Uh, just come and we would uh, love to have you enjoy the fellowship with us tonight, 6.30 in, uh, in this room. Our midweek program that normally meets on Wednesdays is off for a semester break. In fact, we won't start up again until January 20th, so don't show up on Wednesday or for the next several. We had a few families show up this past Wednesday, didn't get the memo, and there was nothing going on uh, then. So we're on break till uh, January the, the 20th. And we also have, after this series is done, which is today, Marriage Matters, this is the 10th of 10 sessions on this topic, so we conclude that today. And then next Sunday, we have just one service. There'll be no Discovering God, no Sunday school. Worship at 11 o'clock. So if you show up at 9.30 expecting worship, there'll probably be some people here, but nothing much going on. 11 o'clock for worship next week, and that's, uh, that's it. Two weeks from today, January 3rd, we start two adult classes. One is our newcomer's orientation, and that is for, as the name suggests, those who are new to our church, and we want to give you information about us, who we are and what we believe and where we've come from and what we hope to accomplish in the future. And I lead a class for four weeks during the 11 o'clock hour, this hour, for the first four weeks of January. Any of you who've not taken that, I encourage you to take it. And don't worry that in taking it, you're making any kind of uh, statement or obligating yourself to anything. And we don't hassle you after you take it. That's a promise. You take it, we give you the information, we tell you at the end, here are the next steps if you decide to take them, and then the ball is in your court. So get the information and then prayerfully consider whether or not this is the place where the Lord would have you to grow and serve. So two weeks from today, that will start, and that will be in an adult classroom right across the hallway toward the back here. And going on at the same time will be our new members class, and that is for those who have joined since the last new members class you will get an invitation to that because that's a closed group. That's a defined number of people. That class will be going on to help you take a deeper dive into who we are and how to get connected and how to get started in your, your membership here. The rest of you will be in here, and for those four weeks, we will have some of our guys uh, leading you uh, in, in teaching, and I'm sure you'll, I know you'll benefit from their, uh, their ministry to you. And then after that, the fifth Sunday, there are five Sundays in January, January 31st, we'll start a new series in here. I'll start a series called Get a Life. That's the name of the uh, series. And Get a Life is about how to order your life around God's purpose. And we will have several weeks where we will deal with that issue. I'll have a handout of material for you to help us all get a life, okay? But that'll start uh, January 31st. Sir. All right, so I'll repeat the question for those who aren't able to hear. Those of you who are in the first hour heard me confess my sin of getting annoyed with people who are incompetent and in what they do. And Tony wants me to do a series on the incompetence of the people that I get annoyed at. That's what you want me to do? You want me to name names. Now, Tony, I, how do I spell your last name again? <laughs> That's what you get, man, for... 
All right. So that's what's coming up today. Our final session in in marriage matters, page 70. And we have uh, eight pages as part of today's lesson and the homework that goes with it. And these 77 pages total now, we will make available to anybody who wants it in a complete notebook. You've been getting these each of the 10 weeks uh, handed out to you as individual lessons. If you want a complete notebook, then uh, let the folks at the information center know. We'll keep a list of who wants those, and then we'll uh, we'll get those copied this week uh, or maybe next week, but but very soon for you, okay? So if you want that, let them know. Today you see at the top of page 70, keep your eyes on the prize. And that begins by practicing hope in our relationships and in particular our marriages. Never allow yourself to think that your actions make no difference, that they won't change anything. Now, before we move on, let me just ask you, is it ever accurate for someone who is a Christian Someone who then is a believer, that's a synonym for a Christian that the Bible uses, a believer. So someone who believes, is it ever accurate for someone who believes to say it's impossible? It's hopeless. It can't happen. So I just remind you, friends, that when you say that, you're talking like an unbeliever. You don't, is there something you think God can't do? And yet when it comes to our marriages and our marriages get ugly, people say that. It's hopeless. He will never change. She will never change. I cannot continue. I cannot continue. Now, mind you, God has told you to continue. But I say I cannot continue. All of these are statements of unbelief. So never allow yourself to think that your actions make no difference, that they won't change anything, and that there's no hope and that it's impossible. That's never the case when God is part of the equation. And we can only say those kinds of things when we've removed God from the equation. And when we do that, we're speaking like unbelievers. And let me make it a little more stark than that. We are speaking like practical atheists. An atheist doesn't believe in God. And yet there are times when we dismiss God from the equation in our thinking that come out in our our words in things like that. So that second sentence, one of the most important actions you can take is to make a daily decision about what you are hoping for. So let me ask it to you this way. What do you want? What do you want? And marriage, as we've defined it going through this series, is this. It's each helping the other to become like Jesus. Relationship, as I've said throughout this series, is for discipleship. Relationship is for discipleship. And marriage, then, is the most intimate of human relationships. And it, therefore, too, is for discipleship which is helping the person you're in relationship with to become like Jesus. That's what marriage is for, to become, to help the other person to become like Jesus. So let me ask you, what do you want? Do you want that? Do you want to become like Jesus? And do you want your spouse to become like Jesus? Well, if you want to become like Jesus, 
then you don't get to get out when it gets hard. You remember this Jesus we're talking about, right? And when it got hard, what did he do? He endured the cross for the joy set before him, scorning its shame. So we will see at the end of this lesson that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, says the author of Hebrews. So if I can say, honestly, I want to be like Jesus, I can't quit. Jesus didn't quit. And do I want that for my spouse? So how do I behave so that God might use me in the life of my spouse to become like Jesus? If you want that, if you really want that, you want you want to become like Jesus and you want your spouse to become like Jesus, then you'll do something. And that's what the last line is. Hope is more than a feeling. It's something you do. Now, what is this something I do? Well, we have Matthew 6 for you here. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then Jesus said later in the book of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all that he had and he bought that field. Now in these passages, Jesus is cautioning us not to put our hope in treasures on earth, earthly possessions, which are temporary because they can be destroyed or stolen. There are dangers in putting our hope in earthly things. If your life's devoted to acquiring wealth, for example, then what will happen when you lose the very thing you've based your life on? What happens when an identity thief ruins your credit? Your house is destroyed in a flood or tornado or whatever, or the stock market collapses. Let me just stop here. You guys go, you know, you read this, and all of us regular folk, you know, you're like, the stock market, what's that? I don't have any money in the stock market. I'm not a player financially. Well, let me just say, your stuff can all be gone when the people who do play get it wrong. And we all had a scare with that at the end of 2008, didn't we? So your stuff, however much or how little it is, is very tenuous. It can be gone even if through the actions of of others. In the middle of that paragraph, if you've given your heart to those things, then they have become your treasure. Your heart will suffer the same fate as your possessions. The flood that wipes out your home will wipe out your heart. The thief that makes off with your wealth also makes off with your heart. Instead, we should set our hearts on pleasing God. And when Jesus returns, he will bring our reward with him. Now, that's earthly possessions, earthly treasures. What is heavenly treasure? Ultimately, Jesus is our treasure. It's his redemptive work that in the end will remake everything on heaven and on earth, including our own hearts and relationships. When you think of treasure that way, you realize that you already have received a down payment. In the here and now, you have an intimate relationship with Jesus and his spirit lives inside of you. You're connected with him at all times and can seek encouragement or share your thoughts, desires and fears anytime you choose to. That's where that's where you should be placing your hope. Than in Jesus, in the heavenly reward, in the heavenly treasure that he is. Keeping your eyes on the prize means that in moments when your actions don't seem to matter, you choose to place your hope in Jesus rather than anywhere else. And that anywhere else includes your spouse. 
I choose to place my hope in Jesus rather than any place else, including my husband or wife. Now, why do I have to emphasize that? Here's why. Because in many marriages, people are putting their hope in he or she is going to change. But you don't know that, do you? So you're putting your hope in something that you have no guarantee on. And that's why every day you make a decision to do something. And that something is to place your hope in Jesus and in Jesus alone, not in anything else, including your spouse. That's what biblical hope is. But in order for you to practice that on a regular basis, bottom of page 70, you've got to have faith. You need faith in God to stay on the path in a difficult marriage. Faith is more than a feeling that everything's going to turn out all right. Hebrews 11 gives one of the most detailed studies of faith in the Bible. We have 16 verses of that for you on page 71. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things yet not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, notice throughout that, it's all by faith. And faith in your Bible, I remind you for the zillionth time, is related to the word for belief. And it helps me to understand what faith is when I substitute belief. Believing, or by belief, Noah did this, Abraham did this, Enoch did this. And on it goes. It's because of what they believed. And if we behave like unbelievers, then we won't do these things. But if we believe, then we will. And that's what faith is. I'm believing. But notice what we say toward the bottom of page 
71. This passage teaches that a Christian's hope is in things like salvation and being rewarded, finding that it was all worth it, and so on. And since faith or believing is not sight, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, which we have for you there, we live by faith, not by sight. Then we believe, for example, in Jesus, though we do not see him. We believe that all things fit into God's plan, though we don't see how. And we believe that indeed God has a plan and purpose, though we don't always see it in the moment. Based on their belief, based on their faith, verse 2 speaks of the ancients who were commended. And what were they commended for? It was taking action. Noah builds a boat on dry land in anticipation of God fulfilling his warning to bring a flood on the earth. Abraham and his family leave civilization in comfort to take a journey to a new home they've never seen. And the list goes on. These are men and women who take action, and the Bible helps us see how their actions make a difference. Note that their actions are not panicked reactions, rash grabs at control, or prideful attempts to be heroic. They are responses to God's promises and belief in his activity. Faith is about, I'm sorry for the typo, believing. Faith is about believing what God says is true. Even when experiences and emotions and God's promises don't seem to add up. Now, please follow this. You will feel bad in the difficult moments of marriage. Being called to faith isn't a rebuke for negative emotions or an exhortation to positive thinking. But it's a call to focus on God's promises, God's love, God's faithfulness, even when they aren't visible. True faith is most obvious when it empowers you to action that's opposite your emotions. You ought to contemplate that sentence again. True faith is most obvious when it empowers you to action that's opposite to your emotions. Doing what you feel like doing doesn't take faith. Faith, being focused on the unseen person and activity of God, often calls you to move against Fears, doubts, disappointment, and anger. Rather than denying these feelings, you have the freedom to acknowledge them and to ask for help. Your actions can be governed by your relationship with God. The power of that relationship and your faith in that relationship becomes most obvious to you when it moves you to do what you believe God is calling you to do instead of what you feel like doing. Man, if Christian people would do that, But I don't feel like it. I don't feel like I love him. I don't feel like I want to be here anymore. There's nothing there. It's gone. Well, besides having a definition of love that is false, and we tried to correct that weeks ago, a definition of love that starts with and is primarily feelings and emotion rather than giving yourself in the best interest of another. That's allowing us to continually be controlled by what we feel and what is most convenient and what we want to do. And believing in God, faith in God means I'm willing to step outside that comfort zone because I know that he will honor that. I know, I believe, I absolutely believe, I am confident that he will honor that. I don't know what he's going to do in my spouse. 
But I know he will honor in me my obedience to him, believing in his promise to obey what he says, even when it's hard and even when I don't feel like it. Dear friends, will you please, please, please contemplate that top paragraph on page 72. That next paragraph, the actions of faith flow out of a focus on God's goodness, power, and activity. You take actions in faith because through Jesus' sacrifice, God acted to give you a new heart. So why would you respond to your spouse's harshness with gentleness? The old heart ain't going to do that. The old heart tells you, hey, you're no doormat. Don't let anybody yell at you. If they yell at you, you yell louder. They use a lot of words, you use more. They give you a blue streak, you give them a bluer streak. Whatever you can do in my sinful flesh, I can do better. That's what the world says, right? That's what the old heart says. But Jesus has given you a new heart. Which is the only explanation for why you'd respond to your spouse's harshness with gentleness. Why you would choose to speak truth when it would be easier to remain silent, whether in your marriage relationship or any other relationship. When you listen to someone and you listen to someone slander or gossip or complain, do you know complaining violates what God says? Philippians 2.14, quote, do everything without complaining. What? We wouldn't even be able to talk. A lot fewer words in the world if we just did what the Bible says. And if you listen to someone do those, gossip, slander, complain. You don't say anything. You're not gossiping. You're not slandering. You're not complaining. Nope, you're condoning. Because it's easier. So you've heard silence is golden. Sometimes silence is just yellow because you're scared because you don't have enough faith to believe that God will honor you coming out of your comfort zone to say this ain't right. Let's not talk this way. Let's go to the person about whom you're speaking. Why would you choose to speak truth when it would be easier to remain silent? Why would you undertake an act of kindness when you know that kindness won't be returned? Here's why. Because you believe there's another actor on the scene. Though you can't see him with your eyes, you remember that he's good and he rewards those who seek him. And the question for us in life in general, in our marriages in particular, is do you believe that? And everybody here would say yes. But as I've been saying the last few weeks, the test is not on paper. The test is in life. The test is in the down and dirty of our relationships. Do you believe that? So there's faith in action then, page 72. The passages below refer to a time in the history of God's people when he had just freed them from captivity in Egypt. In the plagues... Israel had seen amazing displays of God's power. God had been visibly active and had proven his love. Now God tells the Israelites to do more than just observe his activity and power. 
In Deuteronomy 25, remember the Amalekites or what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and you were worn out, they met you on your journey and they attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. So that's what this group, the Amalekites, do. And here's what God tells them. Uh, Here's what God tells us happened in the midst of that battle. Exodus 17. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites in Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Now, what is that all about? Well, you look at the bottom of page 72. The people of Israel, they were weary, worn out, afraid. They had been slaves for generations in Egypt. They were not likely to have been trained in how to fight and engage in warfare. But God had given Moses his staff earlier. He had given it as a symbol of his presence and his power back in Exodus 4. And now he calls on Moses to stand before the people as they do battle as a symbol of both his presence and power. The raising of Moses' hands and his staff indicated that God was the one who was ultimately fighting the Amalekites. And he was the one ultimately determining the outcome of that battle. On the one hand, God's people couldn't afford to believe the battle was entirely in their own hands. If they did, they probably wouldn't have had enough courage to even step out onto the battlefield. On the other hand, they couldn't afford to sit on the sidelines and just see what God would do. God called them to action with the understanding that he would work through them to determine the outcome. Now, friends, you have that dynamic multiple times in your Bible. The dynamic of God's at work, working in and through you. You have that in places like, if you care to jot down, Colossians 1.29. Colossians 1.29. Where Paul, who wrote Colossians, says, I labor. Struggling with all of his energy. So I labor, I, Paul, who wrote it, work hard. And I struggle. The word translated struggle is a Greek word, agonizo, agony. I agonize. I labor, agonizing labor. But I do this with all of his energy that so powerfully works in me. So there you have the dynamic of God is at work. He's empowering us to do the work to which he has called us. But we work. Philippians uh, chapter 2 and verse 13. Philippians 2.13 says that it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. It's God working in you, but as God works in you, you will and you act according to his good pleasure. So faith is not passive. Faith acts. Faith believes, and because faith believes, faith steps out and is willing to act. Believing 
that God is at work. God is active in what he's called us to do. Now, all that stuff in the Old Testament, wars, you know, Joshua, David, and Goliath, all of that, you go, well, you know, that's, that's just so foreign to us, right? So you have to translate the work of that God into what God has called you and me to do. As you read those stories, that's why they're there. This God has not changed. The battlefield has changed. It's not the Amalekites. <laughs> it's your husband. It's your spouse. It's your boss. But you've got battles that God has called you to fight. Top of page 73 then. We need to regularly remind ourselves that we have a Savior whose arms never get tired. Hebrews 11 reaches a crescendo in chapter 12. After this whole chapter of by faith these people did, by faith they did, they believed, they did, they believed, they did. You come to chapter 12 and we're reminded of what a great Savior we have in Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In Jesus, we have a Savior who has known and lived through all our battles without faltering or failing. He stretched out his arms, but in a very different way. On the cross to die for your sins, to make you like him. So the real story that you're to be focused on, that we're to be focused on, is not the immediate thing that we're in. In this case, our marriages. But rather, there's a much larger picture. God's at work in the circumstances in which he's called us, including our marriages. Remembering by faith is an important part of worshiping God and protecting our hearts and marriages. As Israel prepares to enter the promised land, God calls them together and he tells them their story from his perspective. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. He's saying, I did all this stuff during this 40 years to show what you really need and expose what you really believe. What you really need is me and the bread that only I can supply. But I want to expose what you really believe. And that happened over and over again during that 40 years, didn't it? Remember the murmuring, the complaining? the Middle of that page, God used hardships to reveal the hearts of his people. In the wilderness, there was no Egyptians to blame, no distractions that might allow them to avoid the subject, just Israel, God, and the desert. And that's a good line. Oh, I mean, you know, the Pharaoh, and we're in slavery, and the circumstances are crummy. You can't point to any of that. God is leading them. God's supplying for them. God has done marvelous things. It's just you and your heart before God in this situation. And as was the case for Israel, God allows us to suffer, to expose what lies hidden in our hearts, who we really are, and what we really need. 
God says in verse 3, he was teaching the Israelites that they do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Bread is basic, not very exciting. God wants us to humbly accept what we need and not feed our lust by providing us with everything we want. There is daily bread all around you. That's very easy, friends, to overlook. Easy to become tired of, but it's what you need. Consider what Jesus said in John 6. Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Husband, wife, do you believe that? And therefore, can you, I already know the answer to that. Here's the the right question. Will you do what Jesus has called you to do? You will if you believe that. If you don't, you will not. Like every aspect of our lives, our memories are shaped by the condition of our worshiping hearts. Our hearts are worshiping all the time. But very often they're not worshiping the right person. But we are always transacting with God, either positively or negatively. That's why that line is worded as it is. Like every aspect of our lives, our memories are shaped by the condition of our hearts, which are worshiping all the time. So how I see my story and how you see your story depends on the condition of your heart. Is it a heart, a believing heart that is thankful to God? For everything that he has done, is doing, has allowed and will allow. Is it that kind of heart? Or is it a heart that's resentful? I deserved better. This should have gone differently. I married the wrong person. An important part of worshiping God and protecting our hearts and our marriages is remembering by faith. Looking back, remembering, and believing that God has his good, not just his purpose, his good purpose, in all that he's allowed. This week, as you revisit your history, look for the ways it reveals your need for Jesus and all the ways that God has been bringing you to him and everything that he's allowed. Now, next you have your homework. And I've been beating on the homework for ten weeks. If you haven't been doing the homework, then you haven't gotten out of this series what you should because it is really good homework. And this homework is really good homework. So I encourage you to do it. Now, a few weeks ago, I told you that we were going to have a couple of testimonies from marriages that God has worked in. And a few weeks ago, I read a letter from someone anonymously, someone in our church, whose heart God worked in so that he saw that the main thing he needed to do was work on himself. He's married to an unbeliever. And he testified as to the difference it's made in his life and the difference it's making in his marriage. He's praying and we're praying that his wife will come to Jesus. But in the meantime, he's obeying Jesus and bringing glory to Jesus in the midst of his circumstance. Now, I told you I'd give you another one. 
This one is not anonymous. This one is from Tony and Rocky Rourke. Tony and Rocky were going to read their testimonies to you. Uh, Tony, on Friday, many of you know, had gallbladder surgery. They still thought they were coming today to read this. And then I got a text this morning, and Rocky said, she's in pain, so you're going to have to read it. And I said, what a wimp. So I told her, look, tell her to stay home, pastor's orders, okay? But they wrote out what they wanted to say about God's work in their lives. This comes out of a dinner meeting that my wife and I had with them several months ago. And they told us about their history and their walk with the Lord and their marriage. And they were very open, very open about the bad times, the difficult times, and where God has brought them. And I said to them, I appreciate your candor. I appreciate your honesty. You guys could be a really great help to some people if you were willing to share that at some point in the future. And to their credit, they're willing to do that. So here's Tony's testimony. My name is Tony Rourke, and I want those of you who struggle in your marriage to know we serve a God who heals, including our marriages. Me and my husband, Rocky, have been married 16 years, and I can honestly say when we got married, I was truly a broken person. I had been sexually abused as a young girl and grew up in an alcoholic family. Just to let you know a little bit about our marriage, the day before our wedding, I threw the ring that Rocky had got for me in his face and told him I didn't want to marry him. Needless to say, our marriage had a rocky start. No pun intended. I had extreme anger issues, which I, of course, blamed on Rocky. Just to recall a few. He was watching TV, and I was talking to him. I was so angry he wasn't paying attention to me that I put my foot through the screen of the TV. I also remember driving down Fort Street going about 50 miles an hour. We were fighting about something, and I threw my glass coffee cup at his head. It hit the windshield and shattered it. Thank God we didn't get in an accident. The last anger bout I can tell you about involved my husband watching TV again. Again, I can't even remember what I was angry about. But this time I decided to dump a bottle of pancake syrup over his head. And as we go on, I just want you all to think about how you would react. She says, I could probably fill the rest of the hour with all the horrible fights, broken dishes, and holes in our doors and walls. And if my actions weren't enough... I hate you and I want a divorce were a regular part of my vocabulary. I remember thinking, I'm a born-again Christian and so is my husband, so why doesn't God just make our marriage perfect? The fact of the matter was our marriage only got better through our continued service to God and through God's healing word. The more that God dealt with us through his word, the better things got. But this didn't happen overnight. God was there through all our struggles. 
He was changing me little by little over time. And Rocky, through it all, showed me the love and patience that only God can produce in a person. There's truly hope for any marriage when God is the center. Just to let you know, in the last two years, my husband has become my everything. My provider, my love, and my best friend. Now I'm going to read from Rocky here in a moment. But why didn't Rocky just check out? Um, Foot through the TV? Cup to the head? Syrup on the head? But he didn't check out. And by God's grace, here they are. So Rocky says, as Tony mentioned, the beginning of our marriage was very challenging. And I know without a doubt, if we did not have our faith in God, we would have been divorced many years ago. I remember trying to get help for our marriage by going to counseling. We found what was supposed to be Christian counselors. During our counseling, there was finger pointing, blaming, all kinds of expectations, and yes, much baggage. For me, more than anything else, I wanted Tony to respect me. I had a God-given desire to do what God intended, which was to lead my family. The only problem was, every time Tony got mad, she not only didn't respect me, more times than I can count, she would throw a ring at me. Tony and I were both very stubborn and wanted to and wanted our way. Since I believed that God had called me to lead, I thought I was right. As Tony mentioned earlier, she had an anger problem, so my stubbornness and her anger were not a great combination. I certainly had my share of problems, too, as I would either get angry, shut down, or leave. I felt I didn't deserve to be treated this way. I also felt sorry for myself. I remember all the time she would apologize and then she would turn around and do the same thing over and over again. I would confront her about it and she would quote the Bible and say, you have to forgive me 70 times 7. I told her I did the math and she passed the limit a long time ago. (laughs) Another big point of contention surrounded our son Brandon. I've been his father since he was six months old. But since Brandon was not my biological son, Tony felt she should have the say on everything concerning him. She said many times during our fights over the years, you're not his real dad. Even though I was there supporting him, teaching him, and doing everything I knew to be a godly dad. During this time of fighting over Brandon, Tony decided to move out and in with her mom. At this point in the marriage, I was done. I knew God's word, so divorce was not an option. But I had decided I would get an apartment. I wouldn't divorce her, but I wasn't going to live like this anymore. I remember lying in bed planning what to do when I heard the still small voice telling me I can't leave, that I needed to stay and show her the love of Christ. I needed to show her the love she had never gotten from anyone before. I needed to love her through it. This was the hardest thing in the world for me to do because I was already showing her love, but God showed me The only way to fix the marriage was to love her no matter how she acted or what she did. After all, look at what Jesus went through for us. Our marriage has gotten stronger over the years. And we've been blessed with good friends, godly counsel, and a loving church. He says there are so many resources out there. Pastor's marriage class, men's fraternity, and others that can help us with our struggles in our marriages. 
The important thing I learn, I've, I've learned so far, the most important thing I've learned so far, is that I needed to concern myself with me and my issues, love my wife as Christ has loved me, and patiently wait as God works his will in her life, which I thank God he has done and continues to do. You see, guys, this stuff we talk about at church is real. It's real if you really believe it. If you really believe it and you'll act on it. And it's my plea, it is my prayer, that those of you that are in struggling marriages, and I know a lot of you are, is that out of these 10 weeks, go back and read, go back and listen. But most of all, believe God. God is at work. And God is at work in ways you don't see. And for you to say, I can't do it, or it's hopeless, is to say, I don't believe you, God. And if we have believing husbands and wives here, we could have multiple testimonies like this of healed marriages. Of people who have grown in Jesus and where they begin to see the work that God was doing and all the pain and all the ugliness. And God brings fruit out of it. I pray that that will be you guys. Now we're going to bow in just a moment. But I need to ask the men to do one thing. And that is tonight we have our fellowship in this room. So we need to set this room up. It'll just take us a few minutes. So after we pray and we're dismissed, then guys, if you will stay in here, ladies, if you will vacate. And then I'm told we're going to have on the screen a uh, diagram of how the room is to look. So you'll know where the chairs are to go. And uh, I think it's just chairs, not tables, but you'll see that on the, on the screen. Okay? So guys, if you can stick around, we'd appreciate that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that every good and every perfect gift comes to us from your hand. Lord, it is you who has given us the good gift of marriage. And you have given us the good gift of your word that tells us the purpose for which you have given marriage. That we were made in your image and that male and female, husband and wife, you bring together to be a reflection of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The love, the submission, the unity, the character, all of those are to be forged in the context of our marriage relationships so that we are helping one another to become like you. Lord, help us to revel in that, that we get to be a part of what you're doing in reshaping us to be like Jesus. And that you've allowed us relationships in general and marriage in particular to see that happen in our spouses. But Lord, in order for the, this change to take place in the midst of all the fallenness and all of the ugliness and all of the difficulty, we've got to be people who are not nominal Christians. We are not Christians in name only, but we are Christians who say we believe who you are and what you can do. And in the midst of our situations, we show we believe that by acting upon it. I thank you for your grace, operative in the lives of so many here and evident in the life of our brother and sister, Rocky and Tony. I thank you for their courage in telling us about what you brought them through. And I thank you, oh God, for bringing glory to yourself in producing their testimony. 
And Lord, I would ask you to do that same work in the lives of every marriage represented here. Many of them hurting. Many of them on life support, as it were. Lord, we ask you to work your will as only you can. Work in the hearts of your people. To do what Rocky did for Tony. For Tony to to then be opened to see your love in him and to respond to that. May that happen over and over and over again in this group. Lord, may we then please you. And in pleasing you, may we enjoy the ride. May we have joy in the journey because our joy comes from you and in pleasing you and in serving you. Go with us in life this week. Go with us in our marriages this week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.